Morning, Hume. How you doing? If you got a Bible, open it up to Jonah chapter two. We'll finish chapter one together and then jump into chapter two. Last night we saw Jonah receive the word of God and the command of God and then run from God and rebel against God. We saw Jonah do the one thing that he was not supposed to do. He was supposed to receive the message of God and go deliver it with the power of God and instead he was running from the presence of God. We're gonna pick up the story today in the middle of the chaotic storm. In 1991, there was a computer programmer who had kind of a funny name. His name was Dan Gookin. And he felt like all of the manuals that he read to teach people computer programming were highly technical and inaccessible. They weren't practical. They were written in kind of like highbrow technical jargon that normal people couldn't really understand and learn from. He found himself inspired by a manual that he had read to fix his car. It was written in 1969 and the manual was called How to Keep Your Volkswagen Alive, a manual of step-by-step procedures for the complete idiot. I like that title. And so what he did is he wrote a guide for a computer language called DOS. It was one of the very earliest computer programming languages, and he called the book DOS for Dummies. Have you guys heard of the For Dummies books? Now, he wrote this book called DOS for Dummies, and he decided to try to get it published, so he started farming the idea out to publishers, and every single publisher he talked to told him that audiences would reject his book because they would not want to be called stupid. They said, if you tell your readers that they're dumb, they're not gonna want to buy your book. But the joke is on them because between 1991 and now, the Four Dummies series has sold over 300 million books. Teaching people everything from physics to plumbing to cryptocurrency to weightlifting to gardening to every single thing that you can possibly imagine for dummies. What's the draw, What's the, what pulls people into this? Well, it's actually kind of refreshing to admit that you don't have the answers and just tell, have somebody shoot you straight and tell you what to do. And I think sometimes I feel like I don't have answers on how to interact with God. Is anyone there with me? Does anyone sometimes feel like, man, I know God is holy, I know God is good, I know God is powerful, I know God loves me, I know God sent Jesus, I know all these facts about God, but sometimes I just feel stuck in how to move forward in relating to God. Jonah has tried rebellion, he's tried running, God is in the middle of chasing him down, and in this section of Jonah's story, we're gonna see Jonah finally get to the place that I believe we need to get to, and it's this. It's a place of surrender. And so this message is called Surrender for Dummies. Because Jonah, through his example, is going to teach us what it looks like to finally stop running to finally stop fighting, to finally stop ignoring and struggling and surrender to God. I wanna talk to you about this idea. Surrender is the right response to a sovereign God. 
Surrender is the right response to a sovereign God. Because maybe you're like me and you hear the word and the idea of surrender and you, you think about waving your white flag and laying down your arms and you're like, I don't wanna do that. I don't want to admit defeat. I don't want to admit that I don't have it all together and I don't have the answers. I would rather be the one who is competent and intelligent and can do it on my own. I don't want to surrender. But what I wanna show you in this text is I wanna give you a little bit of a picture of the sovereignty of God which just means that God rules and reigns over all things, that he is in charge of the world and of our lives. And because of God's sovereignty, the only right response that we can have to him, the only response that makes any kind of sense is not fighting against the God who rules over everything, but surrendering to the God who is already in charge of our lives. We're gonna see Jonah do it, and he's gonna provide for us a pattern to stop running, stop struggling, stop opposing, stop ignoring, and instead start surrendering, laying down our arms before a sovereign God, a God who has all authority and all power and all might and all dominion, surrendering to him. I wanna show you from Jonah chapter one, the very end of chapter one into chapter two, five ways to surrender to a sovereign God. I'm praying and hoping this will be helpful to you this morning. The first way is this, I surrender to God by acknowledging his authority. I surrender to God by acknowledging his authority. I wanna walk you through this last little section of chapter one, we left Jonah off right in the middle of the raging storm. Jonah woke up from his slumber and the captain said, why are you sleeping? Call out to your God, who are you? And he said, I'm a Hebrew, I fear God who made the sea and the land. And they said, what are you doing? Why are you running away from this God on the sea in this boat and putting all of us in danger? At the beginning of verse 11, the sailors ask a very reasonable question to Jonah. They're like, okay, so since this is your fault and it's your God who is chasing you down, they ask him, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. The storm is getting stronger and stronger the longer that they wait. They ask Jonah, how do we get out of this? And the whole scene that follows, the rest of this little paragraph that finishes chapter one, all of it is just a wholesale recognition of the authority of God. So I wanna just walk you through a couple of these verses, they're gonna be on the screen, and just see how at every verse, in every turn, someone or something is bowing to and recognizing and acknowledging the authority of a sovereign God. Look at verse 12. It says, Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Verse 12, Jonah says, the storm will stop when God is done chasing me. That's when the storm will stop, why? Because God's in charge of it. Verse 13, Verse 13 says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So you first kind of read a verse like that and you're like, oh, it's so kind of the sailors. They don't wanna throw them overboard. They try to get to land so they can safely dump them off. Well, actually, what we're gonna find out in a second is the sailors were not motivated by like humanitarian kindness and they don't wanna throw Jonah overboard. They're afraid that the God who's chasing Jonah will punish them if they kill him. 
And so they row their guts out to try to get to land, to get out of the storm, but it's like God puts his finger on the boat and he's like, nope, you are not getting to land. The storm will get stronger and stronger and stronger until finally they have no other options. Verse 14, they finally cry out to God. Look at verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. These guys prayed desperately and dependently to a God that they didn't even know the name of five minutes ago. Why? Because they are so overwhelmed by his obvious authority over all things, and they acknowledge it. They say, God, we're gonna chuck this guy overboard, and please don't hold us responsible for that, because obviously you are doing what you want to do. They're just acknowledging God's authority. And then verse 15, they actually do it. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. They just yeet him right overboard, right over the rails, into the storm. The sea ceased from its, ra from its raging. Did you see that? They chuck him overboard and get this, in a second, the sea around them goes from a churning blender of chaos to glass. You ever been to a lake like early in the morning? One of my favorite places to be on planet Earth is to be like at a lake house to wake up early in the morning to get a cup of coffee to go sit by the water and it is as still as can be. Imagine this scene. <laughs> They pick up this stubborn, rebellious prophet, they chuck him overboard, and they throw him into the chaotic, churning waters, and he hits the water, and it goes dead, silent, calm. Why? Because God said the storm would stop when it stopped. God said, that's enough. And the whole sea and all the wind and all the rain, it all calmed down. Apparently this scene was so jarring, so shocking, so utterly amazing that these pagan sailors, they devote themselves to God. Look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. The, the word there is they feared the Lord with a great fear. And I'm willing to bet you would too. <laughs> If you saw this happen, they feared him with a great fear, and what did they do? They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now there's the verse we've all been waiting for, verse 17, the verse that Jonah is known for. He gets swallowed by the fish. Now, Jonah gets chucked overboard, and when he gets thrown overboard, it's not as if he's getting thrown over the side so that he can kind of swim his way to dry land. Remember, they're like way out in the open sea and they could not possibly even row hard enough to get back to where they were going. So he gets thrown overboard, not so that he can swim away, he gets thrown overboard into certain death. He gets thrown overboard to die, to save the lives of all the other sailors and finally accept what he believes is his right punishment from God for his rebellion. He gets thrown overboard to certain death, but God sends a miracle. 
You see, I think sometimes we think of the fish as like God's revenge. He's like, ha, gotcha, Jonah. You thought you were gonna get away. I am gonna chomp you with this big fish and it is really gonna suck. That's kind of how at least I've thought of it. Like, oh wow, that stinks. He got swallowed by a huge fish. But it's important to know in this moment, the fish is not God's revenge, it's God's rescue. This is God preserving Jonah's life from certain death by taking him into this chamber that apparently will protect him. And we're gonna find out in a minute as Jonah talks to God that he sunk down into the water and he was going down into the depths, down into the pit, and the seaweed and all the debris was crowding in on him and getting ready to kill him at the moment when the fish swallowed him up and saved his life. This is so powerful. Everything in this story is acknowledging the authority of God. And if you and I want to surrender to a sovereign God, which we should, it's the only right response to a sovereign God, we need to start by just acknowledging his authority, that he is in charge. It's actually good for us if we acknowledge his authority. My son Titus just turned three a a couple weeks ago and he got a new scooter. He's ripping that razor in our backyard every day and he loves it. In fact, he loves it so much that he will try to skip and avoid anything else in his life that he can just to get to the scooter. Now, unrelated to that, he has also become like the the most frustratingly slow eater in the world. So we sit down to dinner and he decides that like chatting it up with mom and dad and looking at all the things he can out the window and taunting his little brother Jude and doing anything that he can do is a far superior activity to eating the food that is in front of him. So we will, we will sit down for like a 30 minute dinner and he's taken like three bites. And I'm like, buddy, you're gonna starve. I'm trying to help you here. Please eat so you will not wake up in the middle of the night crying out with hunger pains but he doesn't want to eat. And oftentimes what he wants to do, because he's not that into eating right now, he wants to skip his dinner and go out and ride his what? His scooter. He wants to skip his dinner and go ride his scooter. And he is convinced that if he just digs in his heels and says, I am in charge, I have the authority, and you will let me skip my dinner and go ride my razor, he thinks that is the key to unlocking what he truly desires. And he is wrong. He's wrong. You know why? Because in our house, you eat the food that mama prepared for you. Can I get an amen? Amen. You eat the dinner that was graciously created and put in front of you. You eat it and then you can move on to what you want to do. But he decides, I am not eating this dinner and you will let me ride my Razor scooter now. If Titus would just humble himself and acknowledge that in fact he is not in charge but his parents are in charge, if he would acknowledge the rightful authority, he would get what he truly wants. I'm convinced oftentimes you and I think, if I can be in charge of my life, I will get what I want. And how many times do we have to make decisions for ourselves and run our lives into the ditch to learn that that's not actually true? The way to get what we truly desire the security and the comfort and the love and the joy that we truly deeply desire is to acknowledge who is really in charge, and it's God. The same way that God was in charge of the water and in charge of the sailors' hearts and in charge of the storm and in charge of Jonah, the same way that everything bows to him, we ought to bow to him, and we will experience the sweet freedom of living in the authority structures that God has made the world to run on. I surrender to God first by acknowledging his authority. 
God is in charge and I'm not, and that's a good thing. Here's the second way to surrender to God. I surrender to God by asking his help, by acknowledging his authority and asking his help. Look at verse one of chapter two says this, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Now, this verse, this chapter, chapter two, it begins with this word, then. Then. When I read that, I ask myself, when? When exactly is then? Well, it says when he was in the belly of the fish for three days. Now, I want you to imagine this for a second. Jonah is smashed into this hot, smelly, painful, claustrophobic, disgusting digestive tract in this giant fish. And in that moment, at that place, he finally turns to God and cries out for the help that he desperately needs. This is so good because you and I, we do not call for help if we think we've got the situation handled on our own. And what the belly of the fish taught Jonah was that he did not have the situation handled. The news flash that we need to realize today is that you and I don't have the situation handled either. No matter how polished or packaged our life looks, no matter how much we think we've got it together and we're just like crushing it in our relationships and in our schoolwork and in our athletics and with my parents and everything's just good and I've got it all together, the reality is we desperately need help from God. We need God's help. We do not have it all together. The belly of the fish was just a good place for Jonah to learn that. I read a guy named R.T. Kendall who made this comment. He said, the belly of the fish is not a happy place to live, but it is a good place to learn. And Jonah learned. What did he learn? I think primarily in these two verses, this is what he learned. He learned, number one, that the Lord is his God. Look at what it says. It says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He remembered that God was his covenant God, that God was his loving father, that God was his And he learned that the God who is his hears and answers cries for help. This is such good news for us because it kind of stinks to admit that we don't have it all together and we need help, but it is so comforting and freeing to know that we have a God who loves to help. God is available to help you right now. If, if God is your God, if you have submitted your life to him and you want to know him and trust him and you ask for his help, he will give it to you. This is why Psalm 46, one says, God is our refuge, a very present help in time of trouble. If you find yourself in trouble, God, if he is your God, will help you. He is a help to those who are in trouble. And the good news is you don't have to wait for the worst possible situation in your life to ask for God's help. You don't have to wait until you're in the chaos. You don't have to wait until you're in the pit. You don't have to wait until everything has gone wrong and you have been shoved down into the bottom. You don't have to wait for that moment. God's help is available to you where you are right now and you can ask for it. I've got encouraging news for you. If you will be like Jonah in this verse, whether you feel like you're in the belly of the fish or not, whether you feel like you're in a hard situation or an all right situation, the good news is this, God never turns someone away when they run to him for help. Did you know this? 
I think sometimes we conceive of God as being high and mighty on his throne and someone comes running into his throne room and says, God, help me, I need your help. And we think of God as kind of like looking down his nose at them and evaluating their sincerity and wondering if they're good enough and kind of judging their motivations and deciding whether or not he will give them help. But that is not the posture that the Bible describes of who God is. The the Bible says things like this in Romans chapter 10. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the book of John it says, no one who calls on the name of the Lord will ever be put to shame. This means that if you sincerely will run to God and you will cry out for his help, he will respond in the affirmative. He will offer you the help that you really need. It may not look like exactly what you're asking for. God may not snap his fingers and change all your situation and your circumstances and make it all go away, but he will give you the help that you actually need. I surrender to God by asking for his help. Here's the third way. I surrender to God by admitting his control. By admitting his control. In these next couple verses, we're gonna see that though it was the sailors who threw him overboard, and though it was the sea that raged, it was actually God who was primarily responsible. And that's what Jonah confesses. Jonah's crying out to God from the belly of the whale, and he says this in verse three. He says, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me, and then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, the deep surrounded me, the weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I wanna just point one thing out to you here in the text. We just read that the sailors threw him overboard. We read it in verse 15. The sailors picked Jonah up and hurled him overboard. But look at who Jonah says threw him overboard. He says, verse three, for you cast me into the deep. You cast me into the deep. Now, did the sailors throw Jonah or did God throw Jonah? The answer is yes. What we're learning here from Jonah's reflection on his situation is that God is sovereign over everything that happens to Jonah and to you and to me. He recognizes God as the animating power behind all that has happened to him. Both the actions of other people and the seemingly uncontrollable forces of nature are being governed by the God of the universe. And he sees it. In fact, he calls, them, he calls the water your waves and your billows. It, they passed over me. All of this belongs to you and comes from you. What is Jonah doing? He's admitting that God is in control. And he's surrendering to a sovereign God who is control, who is, it, who is in control. Now, you might think to yourself, well, if bad stuff happens, if hard things come into my life, are you telling me it's supposed to comfort me that God is in charge of those things? Yes, that is exactly what I'm telling you. 
It is supposed to comfort you that God is in charge of everything that happens in your life. Now maybe that sentence lands on you and you think to yourself, Nick, you have no idea what's happened in my life. You have no idea how hard it's been. You have no idea what's been done to me. You have no idea the, the awful things that have been in my situations and circumstances. Are you telling me God is in control of all of this? Yes, I am. And here's why that's a comfort, because consider your options. Maybe really hard things have happened in your life. I want you to consider for a second your options of who's in charge. If you've got awful things in your past, you've got difficult things that have happened to you or are happening right now in your life, you're in a tough situation, consider the options. Either sinful people like you and like me are ultimately in charge of what happens to you or the uncontrollable forces of nature and the, the reality of fate, it just governs your existence with an impersonal, uh, uninvested perspective. It just governs all of it. Wicked people or uncontrollable nature, they are in charge of your circumstances. Do you think that is in any way better than the fact that there is a sovereign, loving, wise, good God who oversees everything that happens to you and Romans 8.28 makes sure that it will work out for your ultimate good? I think the second option is better, no matter how hard the things are. Because we've gotta face it, like suffering happens, life is hard. Are we gonna say that we're in charge and we ultimately are responsible for everything that happens? Or are we gonna say that there is a good, sovereign, kind, wise God who's in charge of all of it? I think we should go with that option. Let's think for just a second. God is so big and so wise that he can even use evil things to accomplish his good purposes. That's why the cross of Jesus Christ makes any sense at all. Because if we're being honest, that's the worst thing that has ever happened. The spotlessly innocent son of God was crucified on a Roman cross like a criminal to pay for sins that he didn't even commit. That is a heinous act of evil and yet in the sovereign wisdom of God, he was able to use that act of evil for the greatest good that would ever be accomplished in the redemption of all of his people. God is in control of all things so you can trust him. You can surrender to him. You don't have to clamor for control. You don't have to try to maintain it all. You can relinquish it and you can trust him. Here's the fourth way to surrender to God. I surrender to God by accepting his rescue. By accepting his rescue. The second half of verse six picks up by saying this, yet you brought my life up from the pit. O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The first step to being rescued is admitting that you need to be rescued. When I was a little kid, my grandpa, I called him my papa, he had, he had a boat and we were going out on this boat and one time I was on the dock and I was kind of like, uh, tightrope walking on the railing between the dock and the boat, and it was tied to the dock, and I slipped and fell into the gap between the boat and the dock, and I barely caught myself by like my fingers and by my heel, my fingers on the boat and my heel on the dock, and I was hanging down in this gap while the boat kind of like rocked in and out against the dock, and in that moment, I knew 
that I didn't have the strength that was required to get out of that situation, and if I fell down, I was gonna get smashed against the dock. So I found myself in a very perilous situation, and in that moment, fully recognizing that I couldn't help myself, it was very easy to cry out for help and admit that I needed rescue. And in God's kindness, my Auntie Lynn came running over, plunged her hand down, and ripped me out of the gap. It was easy for me to cry out for help and to receive rescue because I knew that I needed it. But I think so often we find ourselves in a hard situation, but we would rather on our own strength try to get out of it and make it all work and make it all come together. And so it's like God comes running over and he holds his hand out like, I want to help you. And we're like, no, I got this. I can do it on my own. I don't need your help. But what Jonah does here is he accepts the rescuing kindness of God. He says, you pulled my life out from the pit. You heard my prayer and you saved me from idolatry and from wickedness. Notice that he celebrates his rescue before he's even out of the fish. He's talking in the present tense, like, you saved my life. You pulled me out of the pit. Look at what you've done for me, God. And he's still squashed in the fish. That's so amazing, why? Because Jonah apparently realized that it is better to be in a desperate situation with God than it is to be in a comfortable situation without God. If you have your life all squared away and you're all, you're all figured out and your chest is puffed up and you're like, God, I don't need you. Get away from me, I'm good. I've got this whole thing squared away. But you don't have God, that's a worse situation than finding yourself in the pit and having the hand of God reach down to grab you and his presence be with you and his mercy be upon you. So if you find yourself in a hard situation, you can receive, you can accept the rescuing work of God and you can celebrate the rescue even if your situation doesn't change because you have God That is the ultimate rescue, is being in relationship with God no matter what your situation or your circumstance looks like. At some point, it is inevitable that you will end up in the pit. The question is not whether or not you'll get there. The question is what will you do when you are there? Will you humble yourself enough to receive the rescue of God? God knows that you and I are stuck. And he knows primarily that we're stuck in our sin and he wants to rescue us and to save us through the finished work of his great son, Jesus. We're gonna talk all about that tonight. But this is the whole point. The reason Jesus came to earth and lived and died and rose again was to rescue lost sinners like you and I. Will we accept his rescuing work on our behalf and be saved? One more way quickly, I surrender to God, number five, by adopting his agenda. Remember, surrender is the right response. It's the only right response to a sovereign God, a God who is in charge. And this last way, I surrender to God by adopting his agenda. So often we're just committed We are doggedly committed to living life according to our agenda, that we set our priorities, we set our plans, we set the course of our lives, and what we do is we ask God to give blessing to what we want to do. And we often treat God like Jonah did here, it's my way or the highway. In fact, in Jonah's story, Jonah's way was the highway. His way was taken off and getting out of Dodge and ignoring the commands of God, but here's the deal. 
when we serve a God that is as big and as awesome as ours, it is a great blessing to us to allow our agenda to die and to pick up God's agenda instead because he's got a better one. And this is what we see Jonah get to at the very end, verse nine, he says, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed to pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We see Jonah at the very end of this poem that he composes, this prayer that he offers to God. He finally gets to a place where he gets on God's page instead of being so stubbornly committed to his own ideas and his own agenda. And so he voices gratitude, he says, with a voice of thanksgiving. He voices devotion, he says, I will sacrifice and pay what I vow, and he, he, he voices trust. Salvation belongs to you, God. Salvation is yours. I think what Jonah realized in some limited way here is that true freedom is not found in doing whatever you want to do. See, this idea is so highly prized in our culture that true freedom is found in doing whatever you want to do. Jonah knows that's not true. He knows that true freedom is, is found in doing what you were made to do. There's a, a famous illustration that uh, Albert Einstein used to use. He said, if you put a fish on the land and tell it that it's supposed to walk, it'll, it'll always think that it's defective, that it's dumb, that it can't do it. And oftentimes, as, as humans, as created beings, what we're trying to do is we're like the fish who wants to get out on land and go for a walk. But the freedom that we desire is actually going to kill us. The freedom that we need is not to do whatever we want to do, it's the freedom to do what we were made to do. And so Jonah says, God, I thank you. God, I'm devoted to you. God, I trust you. And that sentiment at the end of this prayer is what we need. We need to adopt not our agenda, but God's agenda. We need to submit to him and to trust him. We need to surrender to him because he is sovereign. You were made to live in relationship with God and to live on mission with God. And so when you surrender to that agenda that God has for your life, you will be like a fish swimming in the water, doing what you were made to do. Surrender is the right response to a sovereign God. We see at the very end of this story, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. <laughs> what an incredible verse. When Jonah finally gets on God's program, the fish um, becomes like his like aquatic Uber, takes him over to Nineveh, that pukes him up, and he's where he was supposed to be all along. Because God told the fish to do it. Surrender is the right response to a sovereign God. I wanna finish just with this, this story. There's a man in the 1800s whose name was Robert Robinson. And he was stumbling through the streets of London on a Sunday morning after a night of drinking. He used to go to church a lot. He used to be a very um, spiritual fellow, very devoted guy, but he had stopped doing that a long time ago. He uh, was walking down the street and he hailed a coach, like a, the cab of the day, like a horse-drawn buggy, and as he hailed it, he realized as it came up that it was already occupied, it was already full. And so he decided to kind of let it go by, but a young woman who was already in the carriage opened the door and agreed to allow him to share the carriage with her. And so he jumped in, they started exchanging uh, pleasantries and introductions, and she found out that his name was Robert Robinson. 
She recognized the name from a paper that she had folded up and tucked in her pocket. It was a paper that had the words of the famous hymn, Come Thou Fount. You've heard that song? It had the words of the the hymn, Come Thou Fount, on it, and the author's name was Robert Robinson. And she said, she, she said, I have this hymn, and it was written by Robert Robinson, and he said, that's me. He said, I, I am Robert Robinson, and I wrote that hymn. He was the author of Come Thou Fount, and after years and years of being a Methodist pastor and serving the Lord, he had walked away. He had actually lived out the very words that he had written in the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The author who penned those words had done it. He had walked away and he was squandering his life in disobedience and sin. But that day in the coach, it turns out, that woman was headed to church at a Methodist church. And she invited him to come along and he went. And that day, He turned his life back around, and what did he do? He surrendered himself to a sovereign God. In that moment, Robert Robinson knew that the God who governs all things was pursuing him personally. And so he did the only thing that is reasonable to do. He surrendered. And I believe that God, the sovereign God who governs all things, is pursuing you. The question is, will you stop fighting? Will you stop struggling? Will you stop opposing? And instead, will you surrender to him? You will find, if you do, that his love and his mercy and his grace and his guidance will be available and ample supply to you if you'll just trust him and surrender to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sovereign authority over all things. God, I pray that you would help us today to not be so stuck in pride and self-sufficiency that we stiff arm you and run away from you. I pray that you would allow us to be humble and to submit to you, to trust you. And God, when we do, when we surrender, I pray that you would rush in with your presence and your power and your mercy and your grace so that we can experience your kindness and your favor. God, help us to learn the lesson that Jonah learned, that the only right response to a sovereign God is surrender. Help us to trust you, God, we pray in Jesus' name.